Spirit of the living God, we ask now that you would illumine our minds and open our hearts to truths in the passage of Scripture we will consider in order that we might be strengthened in the adversity that may come our way and that we will be filled with hope for the future. We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. And take your Bibles now and turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Pastor Jamie read uh, some excerpts from Daniel 11 and Daniel 12, and that's where we'll be looking this morning. As you're turning to Daniel 11, I just want to make reference to the prayer time that happened before the service this morning. It started at 9.30 over on the far side here, room 224 and 225. If you're not aware of this prayer time, there'll be another one next Sunday morning at 9.30. We're encouraging you to come and pray before the service. Also, at the conclusion of this service this morning, we will go into a time of prayer, and that time of prayer will happen right here in the auditorium. If you are able to stay for an additional seven to 10 minutes at the end of worship, we hope you are. If you're able, we're just asking you to remain in your seats, and we're going to commit our time of prayer into the Lord's hands. If you must leave, we understand there'll be no judgment if you have to uh, slip out, Um, but I I trust that the majority of you will be able to stay as we focus our time of prayer on our divided nation, that God would bring about healing, that we would see an end to COVID and all that has come in the wake of COVID that we're still living with, and that as we begin to services and begin to uh, beat again the drum of the need for us to regather as God's people at West Highland. that um, that God will hear our prayers. Chapter 11 is a continuance of what we saw last Sunday morning in chapter 10, where Daniel is given a vision, um, and this vision is of a great messenger angel who comes to him and tells him about a great war. And uh, this great war is a war that is fought in the heavenly realms, but it works itself out on the earthly plane of history. Now remember that the people of Israel at this point in time when Daniel received this vision, uh, many of them have now returned to the promised land. They're back to Judah, they're back to Jerusalem, and a number of them have engaged in the work of rebuilding the city and erecting again a temple to God's glory for their worship. But the people have grown discouraged, and that is because great opposition to their great task is now underway. They were hoping that they were about to enter into a new era, a joyous time, but their hopes were being crushed. Daniel now in chapter 11 sees in this vision what we will look at today. He sees that this great war in the heavenly realms which works itself out on the earthly plane, that this great war will involve a series of battles a series of battles that will be so intense and they will last for so long that the people in Jerusalem and Judah, even to this very day in our situation here, will begin to doubt if God knows what's going on and if God even cares about the trials and the persecutions that they will undergo. They will wonder, will they survive? And will the promises of God that were given to them prove true? So, in chapter 11, God through the angel to Daniel, 
through Daniel's words to his people in the ancient world and to us today reveals what will happen in the days and the years to come, right up until the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, and even beyond into our own day, until finally the Lord Jesus Christ returns a second time in power and in glory. So keep in mind as we look at chapter 11 now, we're looking at the earthly plane. We're looking about what will happen in the immediate history after Daniel lived right up to the time of Christ and even to the end of the age. But it is history that we can see and read about, but remember, it all relates to what's happening in the heavenly realms, behind the scenes. The first thing we're going to see is Alexander the Great and the succeeding Greek kingdoms. The first 19 verses of Daniel 11 deal with this topic. We see, first of all, the end of the Persian Empire. Look at verse 2. Now, I t- now then I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. So in essence, what uh, the angel is saying here is that it is just a matter of time. Daniel, keep this in mind. It's just a matter of time, maybe four generations more, maybe upwards to 150 to 200 years, and then Persia, who conquered the Babylonians with great power, Persia will finally fall. It will come to an end. It will go the way of Babylon, and then Greece will emerge, and Greece will become the dominant world power of that day. Now, verse 2 tells us that there will be three, three Persian kings and then a fourth. Now notice they are not named for us. You're going to get no names in this passage at all. But three kings did emerge, and finally there was a fourth, and we know from history that his name was Xerxes. Have you heard of him before? If you read the book of Esther, he is the Persian king who was ruling in Persia at that time, several generations after Daniel had died. He selected the Jewess Esther to be his queen. Now that's what we know from biblical history. But from history outside of Bible sources, we also know that what happened here, he'll stir up Persia against Greece, that that's exactly what happened. Persia tried on two occasions to attack and to defeat the Greeks, and they failed both times, and Xerxes led a third charge against Greece with, with an army of one million men, and he was repulsed. And the result was it so angered the Greeks that the Persians had done this to them three times that they were determined in the future that they would go against Persia. And when Alexander the Great came along, when he rose to power, that is exactly what Alexander did. So in verse 3 now, we're looking at Alexander the Great. His rise and his fall. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. And we know that the the, the empire of Alexander was divided up into four kingdoms, four Greek kingdoms, 
They shared a common language. They shared a common culture. But these four kingdoms were always in opposition to each other. Notice it says here in the verse that the empire that Alexander had will not go to his descendants. He had two sons. Now, in the way kings work, normally the oldest son follows. But both of his sons were assassinated, as well as his many wives and even his distant relatives were put to death. And the result was the fracturing of his, em- his empire, and four of Alexander's generals rose to power, and they became then the kings of these four different kingdoms. But there were two that were the significant superpowers of the day. And chapter 11 mentions them. We're not going to look at the verses, but if you go through chapter 11, you'll see repeated references to the king of the north and the king of the south. Those phrases must be used at least 10 or 11 times. The king of the north and the king of the south. These are the two superpowers that emerged at this period of time. Seleucus, one of Alexander's generals, settled in the area that we would commonly know as Syria or Iraq today. That was the kingdom of the north. Ptolemy moved into the southern area, below that into the northern part of Africa, into Egypt. He was the king of the south. We see it here on the slides. The north is Syria, the Seleucid kingdom. The south was Egypt, the Ptolemaic kingdom. Now, I don't know if you're supposed to pronounce the P, Ptolemy. I don't know. If any of you can figure out the correct pronunciation of that word, come and see me afterwards. You will win a free coffee and muffin and sandwich at the Cornerstone Cafe at my expense when the Cornerstone Cafe opens. And Pastor Chris Kovac will be happy to pay for that. Now what you have then in the remainder of the passage, we're not going to get into the detail here. I don't want to get bogged down in it, so relax, okay? But what you have is a detailed description now of the wars between the North and the South. Not the American Civil War, the North and the South, but this war in these two Greek empires. Beginning at verse 5, the King of the South. If you notice verse 6, the King of the North. And so back and forth, you get this detailed description of what happens over this period of 200 to 300 years. A detailed prediction of everything that happens. It is incredibly precise. It includes the alliances that these kings make, the intrigue that goes on, the political intrigue behind the scenes, the seesawing of various battles as as the king of the north grows in power and then the king of the south, and back and forth it goes. If you want to read the history of this, I would encourage you to get a copy of the English Standard Version of the Bible, the English Standard Version Study Bible. It gives an excellent outline of who these kings were and the various wars, or if you want to see me afterwards, I could recommend a book or two for you to read. Now, most of chapter 11, then, is about these wars after Alexander the Great. Now, a question that should come to all of our minds is this. Like, what is the significance of Daniel including all of these wars, which are ancient history to us, what is the significance of it all? How do we understand this? Why is it even in our Bibles? Is it, is it important that it actually be here? 
And we want to understand why this was important. But listen, it was important to the people immediately after Daniel, right up to the coming of Christ. But why would it be significant for us today? Why would God the Holy Spirit move Daniel to record such intimate, precise details about the future? And the answer, I think, is easy. The answer is, all you have to do is look at a map of the ancient Middle East, and you'll see the reason why. Now, the circles we've drawn, we've drawn there don't include all of the land that these two kingdoms had, but as you'll see, the Seleucid king, kingdom is in the north, Syria and Iraq, right up almost to the border of Tur- Turkey, and then the Ptolemaic or the Ptolemaic kingdom is in the south, which includes Egypt. Now, look where the two circles touch each other. Where is that? The Seleucid kingdom is north of what? The Ptolemaic kingdom is south of where? If you look at verse 16, it says, the beautiful land. It's Jerusalem. It's Judah. It's Israel. The people of God are living in an area sandwiched between these two great superpowers. And that helps us to understand the reason why Daniel includes it here, the Holy Spirit leading him. Babylon had collapsed, and we know that the Jews had returned to the promised land because of the decrees of a Persian king. Great numbers returned. Now, we also know that many remained scattered throughout these two kingdoms. They weren't all in the Holy Land or the promised land, but many of them did come back. And chapters 11 and 12 describe what their plight is because of these two superpowers that are in conflict with each other. Israel was sandwiched by these kingdoms at war. Israel became the battleground. Now let me go back a couple of weeks. Remember we looked at this amazing prophecy of the 70 weeks? which are are somewhat enigmatic and hard to understand. But the first 69 weeks, Daniel tells us that those 69 weeks, which take us right up to the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the words that Daniel uses are, these will be troubled times. Troubled times. So in chapter 11, we're in the 69 weeks of years that lead up to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are troubled times. Now, out of this seesawing of battles and the troubled times that are here, there emerges one king in the Seleucid kingdom who dominates the rest of chapter 11. He is one of the kings of the north. And in verse 21, he is referred to. Look at what it says, verse 21. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. This was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And in the verses that follow, we will see that his time leads to the abomination of desolation, which I will explain in just a few moments. Now, Antiochus, his name is never found in the Bible, but he is definitely the person that is being referred to here We also saw him in chapter 8, where Daniel has a different vision, and he simply refers to him as another horn, that is another king with great great power. 
Now, he is described here as the ruler who comes at the end of this succession of kings in the north and the south after Alexander the Great. And he is the culminating ruler of all of this north and south intrigue. Now, these verses reveal that Antiochus, he would advance his career amazingly through deceit and intrigue. And in the beginning of his reign, there were victories for him that were very easy to achieve. Now, we could look at a lot of things about him in these verses, but there are three things I want to focus on. The first is this, his hatred of God's people, his hatred of God's people. So go down to verse 28. The king of the north will return to his own land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against what? The holy covenant. That is the covenant people of God. These were the Jews in that period of time. He is against them. Next line. He will take action against it. He is opposed to the covenant that God made with his ancient people. He will return, sorry, he will take action against it and then return to his own land. If you go down to verse 30, the last part of verse 30, he will return and show favor, sorry, before that, then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant covenant. That is those Jews who no longer want to live as Jews. They want to live as Greeks. They have forsaken their faith. They will become Antiochus's allies, but the faithful Jews, the faithful people of God, he will come against them. He hated the people of God. Now we read in these verses that he led a successful invasion into Egypt, and later he would return for a second invasion. And that invasion is described in verse 29. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands, or from Kittim, which is basically the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean, ships will come from there. And what will happen then? They will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury. So, what is verses 29 and 30 referring to? He invades Egypt a second time, but clearly he is not success successful. Have you heard the expression, they drew a line in the sand? You've heard, how, how many of you have heard that expression before? We've all heard it. I mean, this is the line that is used when, when guys wanna fight each other. I'm drawing my line in the sand or when nations are contemplating war with each other. I think even Vladimir Putin has used this line recently. This is our line in the sand. You cross this line, you're in trouble. Well, where does this line come from? Well, it actually comes from these verses. It comes from this historical moment in verse 29 in verse 30. In the year 169 B.C., Antiochus, expecting that he could have an easy victory over the southern kingdom, moves against Egypt a second time, but he's intercepted along the way. Rome, which was now emerging as a great world power, which controlled most of the Mediterranean Sea at this, at this time, Rome did not want Antiochus to gain access to Egypt's wealth and vast resources. 
And so the Roman fleet came from Kittim, from Cyprus, and landed in Egypt in the, in the city of Alexand- Alexandria. And the Roman consul, if I can pronounce his name, Gaius Papalius Lanus, he handed to Antiochus a letter from the Roman Senate which essentially said, leave or else. Then Papalius drew a line in the sand around where Antiochus was standing at that time and he said, you need to decide. If you go forward out of this circle, you are at war with Rome. If you go backward out of the circle, you will have peace. And Antiochus backed down and he stepped backwards outside of that circle. Hence the phrase, a line in the sand. He was humiliated and he was furious. And verse 30 says, he would vent his fury. But how would he do it? Well, he would lose heart, it says first. He lost heart when Papilius stood before him and said, cross the line. And then he vented his fury when he then went back to his own nation and vented his fury against God's people. You see, the Jews at this time were the people that were most resistant to Antiochus' attempts to force them to imbibe the Greek spirit and bow down to the Greek gods. And so in the year 168 BC, according to verse 30, something happened. He will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake that. So these are the Jews that were willing to be with him, and he conferred with them in a secret way. And then in verse 31, we read that his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple and abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Antiochus sent 20,000 troops into the city of Jerusalem at this, at this time, fully armed men who were backed up by reinforcements who came later. They massacred people on the streets. They ravaged the city of Jerusalem mercilessly. They took circumcised infants and butchered them and mutilated them and then hung them on stakes in front of the homes in which they had lived. The book of 2 Maccabees tells us that within three days... 80,000 people were killed. Now verse 31 says that he created what is sometimes in the Bible called a desolating sacrilege or the abomination of desolation. He will desecrate the temple fortress, abolish the daily sacrifice, then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. The temple which had been rebuilt by Nehemiah and Ezra, now lay in ruins again. It was completely defiled. The sacrifices that were offered by God's people were done away with, and Antiochus put an altar over the Holy of Holies. He erected an altar to the Greek god Zeus, to whom he was incredibly devoted, and he sacrificed a pig on that altar. The abomination of desolation. Verse 32, with flattery he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. In other words, through deceit. There were Jews who abandoned their faith. They gave in to what Antiochus wanted. But, verse 32, the last part, the people who know their God will firmly 
resist him. Others remained true to the faith, faithful to their Lord. And this battle went on for three and a half years, and it is referred to in history as the Maccabean Revolt. So there you have it, right up to the dime of Antiochus. I want you to look now at verse 36. Verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. Now, when we read verse 36, it it sounds like, as you read the passage through, a cursory reading brings you to the conclusion, well, this is Antiochus again. He's this king who will do as he pleases, and certainly that's true of what Antiochus did. Certainly it's true that he exalted himself. Certainly it's true that he spoke unheard of things against the God of gods. This must be Antiochus, but as we read on in the passage, we begin to discern that that Daniel is actually writing about someone else at this point in time. Antiochus is like him. Antiochus and him are are so much the same. Two distinct individuals, but so much the same that they, they blur together as one. Brian Chappell, in his book, The Gospel According to Daniel, writes this. He says, Antiochus is still in the foreground, but a more distant vision of someone similar begins to enter the prophecy as though a modern camera lens that has been focused on someone in the foreground now begins to zoom in on someone in the background. And for a brief moment, as the foreground picture dissolves or blurs, we see features of both images until the picture is in focus. I think Chapel's comments here are very, very helpful to us. Daniel sees Antiochus clearly, but Antiochus's image begins to blur and to dissolve because there's someone in the future standing behind him in the background. And as the camera lens zooms in and zooms out, Antiochus blurs away, and there is someone else standing in Daniel's vision. We come now, I believe, to the Antichrist and the time of the end. Now, why why would I say, why would Bible teachers believe that this is not Antiochus who's being described here? I think I can give you several reasons. Look again at verse 36. It says here, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Antiochus did not do that. He hated the god of the Jews, but he did not exalt himself over every god because he was a devotee of Zeus. Verse 37 tells us, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. But that's not true of Antiochus because he worshiped the god of his fathers. He worshiped all of the gods in the Greek pantheon. He was a devotee of Zeus. And then if you go down to chapter, look down at the last verse, verse 45, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. What is that time? Well, if you go down to verse 2, it says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, 
some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Friends, do you realize that verse 2 takes us right through to the end of time, to the resurrection of the dead? So Daniel now is seeing someone at the very end of time itself, just prior to the great resurrection of the dead, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these are the reasons why we conclude that this is not Antiochus, but this is some future Antiochus. It's not about Antiochus anymore. We're able to see now a future evil that is on the horizon. And I believe this future evil will culminate in the future in the man that the Apostle Paul calls the man of lawlessness. He will be a ruler, a political personage perhaps. We're not really sure. We're not given a lot of information. But some kind of an individual who will transcend in wickedness any known figure in history. I'm going to put this slide up right now, and you'll notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at what it says there about the man of lawlessness. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, and even sets himself in God, up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Compare that with Daniel 11:36. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will say unheard of things, uh, unheard of things against the God of gods. It's not exactly uh, a direct quote from 2 Thessalonians 2, but you can see the similarity between the two verses. Alexander Begg makes a very, very helpful comment, and he says that 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 which has been charcoal sketched throughout the whole of the book of of Daniel reaches this this, um, full technicolor portrait in the Antichrist, and Antiochus is just simply a pale reflection of the one who is to come. So who is he? I mean, this is what everybody wants to know, right? I mean, you can read all these prophecy books that gets into all kinds of fanciful speculation as to who he is. Everybody wants a name. And throughout the history of the church, there have been those who've tried to give you a name. And they're always wrong. And there have been many antichrists that have risen up in the history of the church. There's no doubt about it at all. But Daniel doesn't give us a name. And the New Testament doesn't give us a name. All the, all the New Testament gives us is a title, the man of lawlessness. So two important questions to answer now, to ask and to answer. First, what does Daniel say about the final Antichrist? And the first thing I think is clear in verse 36, that he will deify himself. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God and say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will deify himself. He will do as he pleases. This is human autonomy at its worst. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 3 when we went into sin and in going into sin, what really was the core of our sin? What really was the essence of what sin was in the garden? If you eat of, this tr- of the fruit of this tree, you will be like God. That has been human aspiration from Genesis 3 through all of history. And this man will epitomize human aspiration to the core. Autonomy, 
self-absorption, self-centeredness. And haven't we seen this in Daniel before? Remember Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two? He sets up this great and glorious image. He says, to the glory of my majesty. And everyone has to bow down to his image. Nebuchadnezzar is a forerunner of Antiochus and a forerunner of the Antichrist. We see this throughout history where political rulers have come into play and and exalted themselves and glorified themselves, practically deifying themselves. Here we read, he will be a blasphemer. He will speak unheard of things against the God of gods. I want you to notice there's an interesting expression which is very hard to understand in verse 37. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women. What does that mean? It's a difficult phrase, and all the the commentators weigh in on this, and they acknowledge that this is a difficult phrase to both to translate and to understand. Let me give you what some of the 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 commentators say, because there seems to be a common consensus among what they are saying, that this phrase, one desired by women, uh, means that this individual will not favor normal marital relations that he will have a disdain for marriage. He will be incapable of loving of the loving devotion that is required in marriage. That there is nothing more basic to life than the male-female distinction. That that male-female distinction lies at the very heart of humanity itself. But this individual will have no interest whatsoever in the foundational elements of God's created order as it relates to sexuality. Now, if we are not living in a day and age that could set this guy up, I don't know what day and age we're living in. Number two, he will be consumed with conquest. Verse 38 says, instead he will honor a God of fortresses. That is a God of might and of power. This will be his distinguishing feature. With power, he will crush power. And if you look at verses 39 through 42, you will see it is all about power. He goes after kingdom after kingdom, and he crushes them. Now the battle is framed here in the words of the ancient world, in the weaponry that was used, in the geography of the ancient world. But nonetheless, this is what he will do. And in verse 41 says, he will also invade the beautiful land. He will do exactly what Antiochus did because Antiochus foreshadows him. In other words, he will persecute God's people. But hallelujah, look at verse 45, the last line. He will come to his end. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Praise God. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in 2 Thessalonians 2 when he writes that the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So what does Daniel say about the final Antichrist? These three things. Now what does Daniel say lies ahead for us as the people of God? Now we bring it somewhat into our application today. What does Daniel say lies ahead for the people of God? Well, look at chapter 12, verse 1. Remember, the chapter titles 
or numbers were not there in the original writing. So verse 45 of chapter 11 flows very naturally into chapter 12, verse 1. At that time. At what time? At the time when the Antichrist will come to his end. At the time when the Antichrist is here in this world. At that time, Michael, the great prince, who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as, as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people... Okay, let's stop there. First of all, there's going to be terrible persecution. Daniel tells us here that this will be a time of unparalleled distress. It is going to be a time of trouble for God's people. A time of trouble that is going to break the boundaries of everything that has preceded it, whether it was Babylon or Persia or Rome or the Third Reich or any regime in our world today that opposes God's people. Interestingly, Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 referenced this verse in Daniel 12, and he said there will be a time of distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. The suffering will be more intense than at any time in history, according to Daniel and according to Jesus. Now this should not surprise us. Because Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you also. That you will be hated by all nations because of me. And the Apostle Paul wrote that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Listen, the norm... The norm for the church around the world is persecution. These last 150 to 200 years in which in Canada and the Western world the church has has lived for the most part within a protective bubble is not the norm of the church's experience in history. It's an aberration. It is persecution that will come upon God's people. Now, what are we to do? Is there any comfort in these verses? I think there is. Because as alarming as they are to our souls, chapter 12, verse 1 tells us that Michael will arise. Remember him? Michael, who protects the people of God, who is responsible, it says here, for those whose names are in the book. At that time, Verse 1, but at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Michael protects God's people. Listen, friends, there are unseen legions of angels that are standing with Michael behind God's people in all of the persecution that we will go through. And it says here that God's people will be delivered. Now, what exactly is he referring to here? When does this deliverance come? Let me read to you these verses from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul is talking about those who persecute the church. And he says this, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will 
happen, Paul says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. There's Michael. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. Lord, speed the day. Lord, speed the day. Even those who die will be delivered according to this verse. Verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, a euphemism for death, will awake, a euphemism for resurrection, some to everlasting life and others to everlasting shame. There is going to come at this time a great separation of humanity. And those who have come to Christ and followed him, those who've been saved by his grace, everlasting life, and those who have rejected the one true and living God and remained in their sins, shame and everlasting contempt. There are only two destinies for human beings. Only two. But with this resurrection, this glorious resurrection, notice that's what he's talking about here. And he goes on to describe it now in verse 3. Those who are wise, that is those who've turned from darkness to light, will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. A glorious resurrection is coming. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we may suffer much in life. And even millions today are being persecuted for their faith. But in the final days, when this worst persecution ever will occur, we might think about this and say, this is not good news. But here is the good news, that even if we are martyred for our faith, God will raise us from the dead, and we will shine like the stars forever. Verse 4, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll. Until the time of the end. In other words, Daniel, don't tamper with this message. Preserve this message. Why? So that those especially who live at the time of the end might read it and find comfort in it. Now, there is a message then here for all of us. Praise the Lord. And what is it? I want to give you just a couple of takeaway points. How does this message of Daniel 10 through 12 help us? Number one, this message rebukes our acceptance of prosperity teaching, which is so prevalent in the Christian church today. All kinds of so-called evangelists of, of wealth and health who keep communicating to us over and over again that it is God's will for you to be healthy and God's God's will for you to be wealthy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there may not be a more critical message for our age which is saturated by this prevalent false teaching in the church today. And to some degree, we have all imbibed this teaching. That it is God's will for your life to live without difficulty, without hardship, without pain. That your best life is now. Chapters 11 through 12 cut to the heart of this false teaching. 
It is false. It is spiritually abusive. It is damaging teaching. What we see in Daniel 11 and 12 is a correction to this teaching because this teaching is contrary to the life of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Now let me say this, if I can, with the best of the king's grammar that I can use and the most poetic phrases that I can find. That bird don't fly. That dog don't hunt. It ain't true. Prosperity teaching, number two. This message from Daniel 11 and 12 reminds us and reassures us that God knows and God cares. In chapter 11 and 12, a lot of darkness is revealed. A battle, a war, persecution, suffering, abomination, desolation. I mean, I don't know about you, but Daniel 11 is not my go-to passage. It's not the passage in God. I want to go to, like, give me Psalm 23 any day over Daniel 11. But this passage reminds us of something we need to know. You and I are inundated with fears and anxieties in life. I mean, we don't need COVID to inundate us with fear. There's a lot of other things that create fear for us today. We wonder what's going to happen in Europe and other places of our world. Now, these prophecies here in Daniel 11, in their scope and in the detail that is given, they don't take away our fears and anxieties because we understand what's coming, but they do something for us. They confirm that God knew what was going to happen, right? He knew what was going to happen from from the day of Daniel's death, the fall of Persia, the rise of Greece, Antiochus, into the future. God knows what is going to happen. And because God knows, we are able to keep on going. I mean, God's people back in Daniel's day and right up until the time of Christ and throughout the history of the church, at different times as persecution has grown and spread, they must have wondered, does does God really know? Does God really know what we're going through? But then in history, from Daniel's day until today, the church has passed some, God's people have passed some unique historical markers that we find here in Daniel 11 and 12. And because we've passed those markers in time, we can now say, God knows. God knows. You see, these prophecies are meant to work in us in a similar way. We now know the pattern in which the spirit of Antichrist is going to work in our world today and in the future. That there will be the persecution of God's people and the profaning of that which is holy, even the bonds of marriage itself. And the seduction of the weak, many falling away. All of this is going to occur. And when we see all this, and when we experience it, then we will know We will know that we are on the path ordained by God. We are on the path of his people who walked that path in previous generations. And therefore, we will just keep on walking because God knows what we are facing. He knows the big picture. He knows the details, the specific and detailed things of of history. 
And if we think that all that is known to God is what will happen today or in the past, and that tomorrow is hidden from him, then we cannot go forward at all with strength and courage and sacrifice. But knowing that he knows is what we need to keep on going as he desires. And he also cares. And the evidence of that is here in this long passage that we have looked at today. Because God cares enough to warn his people about what is coming. All the detail is here. It's as though God is saying, get ready. And he cares enough to limit what will happen. What is very interesting in in Daniel 11 is this phrase that keeps being used, at the appointed time. It's at the end of verse 27, at the appointed time. It's the beginning of verse 29, at the appointed time. It's at the last word of verse 35, at the appointed time. Three times, at the appointed time. You see that? Horrible things, but never beyond God's appointment and control. And everything that seems, everything in the world seems chaotic, but remember, it is all decreed by the one who sits on the throne. He cares enough to warn us. He cares enough to to limit it, it, as it were, and he, he cares enough to save us. Because at that time, verse 1, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. And that takes me to the final thing that I want to share with you. And that is, Daniel 11 through 12 reminds us, renews our hope in the salvation which is still to come. Paul wrote to Titus and said that we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in Luke 21, when you see all these things beginning to happen, all this turmoil, all this chaos, when you see it beginning to happen, when you you see men arise on the world stage like Antiochus, when 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 you see persecution spreading, when you see rough times coming, when you see all these things beginning to happen, Jesus said, lift up your eyes. For your redemption draws near. In essence, in Daniel 9 and Daniel 11, God was saying this to the prophet, and he's saying the same to us. Daniel, the future looks bad. This is what's coming. It's not pretty. There will be suffering. There will be hardship. There will be death. But it's for A time, a time, and glory is forever. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, thank you for your Spirit's work in the life of the prophet. Thank you for what was revealed to him by one of your holy angels. Thank you for the comfort and the help that we receive today because of what happened in ancient times. Thank you that you will be with us to the end and that he that endures to the end will be saved.